welcome once again to another episode of Thoughts and Tea, Tea and Tea with your girl, Tea and me. Obviously, you know I'm going to start by saying thank you for joining me on another episode because you are the reason why I do what I do. Without you, there's no tea, there's no me. <coughs> anyway, once again, welcome to this episode. If you would remember the last time we met... How many men did I have with me? Oops. (laughs) How much testosterone did I have on this show? One, two, three, four, four and a half because I count myself as half. But anyway, I had with me brilliant gentlemen to give us their perspectives on what it meant to be a man within, well, their age range. As I promised... I had more tricks up my sleeves and for today's conversation, which is actually going to be in two parts, I have again some more testosterone, except it's more mature testosterone. Yes, I have with me the more mature black men to share the perspective of what it means to be a black man. From their lens, of course. I'm sure you all remember, the point of the community series is to just get perspective and understand ourselves better as black people in the black community because after all, we need each other to survive, to thrive. And the very first system or organization that needs to be kept together in order to progress any community is the family And as black people, we are family and we ought to listen to each other. So again, welcome to this episode. I have two amazing men with me and I know you're probably going to learn as much as I am going to learn from them. So sit back, grab yourself some tea or water, coffee. Maybe some gin if you want to go that route. Just sit back, relax, and let's jump right into it. Clink. Hi, guys. Remember, welcome again to Thoughts and Tea. Thank you so much for joining me. The last time that we met, I had a bunch of young, energetic guys who were giving me their perspective on what it meant to be a man. And it was quite interesting. I know I learned a lot. I hope you did too. Well... You trust your girl T to spice it up, and here I am. We have our more mature men about to give us their perspectives. I have two amazing young um, (laughs) gentlemen with me right now, and I will just mention their names and I'll let them introduce themselves to you. I have Mr. Douglas and Mr. Yugo, and I'll let them tell us about themselves and where they're from. So the floor is yours. Thank you. I'm honored to be on the show with the distinguished panelists. My name is Ishmael Douglas. I live in Cleveland, Ohio, which is in the United States of America. I'm currently the Dean of Engagement at All Black um, School, 100% boys. So that gives me a perspective in terms of dealing with young men. I have over 40 years of working in the community. 
I currently teach an art form called Capoeira, which is an African-Brazilian martial arts. I'm a musician. I play five different instruments. Um, yes, so I've traveled the world. I'm currently studying Kora, um, which is a very ancient African instrument. And my teacher uh, is Yakuba Sinsoko from Mali. He comes from a long tradition of Kora players. So I'm honored to study Kora under him. Um, again, I'm a guitar, I play guitar. I play a Turkish instrument. I spent some time in Turkey and did some work there with artists in Istanbul. So I'm really a global citizen. And I'm always interested in how we can enhance who we are as human beings. Well, I need to see after this podcast because my, <laughs> me and my musical I have is my voice. <laughs> anyway, Mr. Yibo. Okay, my name is Yibo Koko, and I'm from Nigeria, from Port Harcourt, actually. Port Harcourt is uh, the capital of River State, and um, I dance, traditional dance. I wow. teach traditional dance. I direct traditional dance drama uh, on a global stage. And the dance is known as Seki. Seki means dance, actually. Right now, I'm the Director General of the River State Tourism Development Agency um, here in River State, Nigeria. And it's so nice to see Douglas and T here on our show. And she looks amazing, actually. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Mr. Yubo. Even though our listeners are not going to see me, <laughs> now they have to find me. Anyway, let's jump right into <laughs> it. Okay. So the very first question is, what does it mean to be a man? And I think I'll just add it to the next one, which is what does it mean to be a black man? So it's a two-part question. Well, for me, um, that's a loaded question. Um, and I want to kind of like, taken from the premise of how we've been taught not how to be a man, particularly in the United States, um, the stereotype or the images that are is basically given to the American public about black men is very uh, negative, condescending, and very harmful. But in terms of being a black man, um, I had the uh, honor to live with my father. My father met my mother when he was 16. He stayed with my mother until he died at 88. He never left. So I had a classic example of what it was to be a man, um, to be responsible, take care of the home, do things in a timely manner, be respectful, and particularly to women. We got to talk about that because the culture right now in terms of the music industry is giving us a wrong impression of what men are about. We never disrespect our women because without women, we could not exist. So we have to have this idea of responsibility and understanding our role in society. One of my teachers taught me that men always bring order. Order in the sense that when you see something wrong, you have to address it in a way that you model how to be a man, what it is to be a man. Um, again, we have to dispel all these myths because particularly in America, we've been inundated with so many negative images about black men. We have to deal with that, address it on a global level, because if we don't do that, then people have the wrong images about black men. And we are survivors to come off a slave ship and to be able to raise families. I always give this example, and I, please let me know if I need to stop. How is it that you come off a plantation, not knowing where to go, looking for your families, and then establish schools and community? That's a miracle within itself. You barely can speak the language. And to be able to do that, 
I think we really need to take a deep study on how black men, after they were um, left, kicked off the plantation, went and looked for their families. That is not talked about. So we understand the role of family and the role that we play as black men. So we have to now start researching that and start having more discussions about all the positive and powerful things that black men have done and continue to do on this planet. Damn, you took it to school right there. And no, don't stop. Like, that's the point of this conversation. Don't stop. Okay, so, <laughs> Mr. Ibo, he has said the Bahayo. <laughs> uh, well, uh, the thing is, in, in, again, Africa here, mm -hmm. in Nigeria, yeah. the experience is actually different from your experience there. You know, in the sense that when you talk about from the plantations, we would like to talk before the plantation, when our culture was maintained and rich. And I say a man who is born uh, in a home with many years of cultured living, you know, in essence, is a man who is confident, a man who knows his audience, you know, a man who is true to himself. So you have the foundation uh, being brought up culturally with value, so to speak, as it were, because it's not just your family that raises you, but the community does. So um, from, the black, the, from the black man's perspective, especially in America, some of the things you feel and suffer in terms of racism, that things that we normally don't take, you know, we, we won't even empower you to be racist, you know. Uh, the, probably the South Africans might feel different, but because we, we don't have that, we know nothing about racism, you know. And I will never see a white man who is colored in our sense here because we're predominantly black anyway. So you know what I mean. So, <laughs> so the key thing is, yeah, he's colored as far as I'm concerned. They're all colored, I'm not. And there's a mutual respect, especially if I know you have value to put on the table. But once I sniff that whiff of anything uh, unnatural, you know, from what we read, we just put you exactly where you belong, you know, beneath me, that's it. You know, it's not condescending, it's not racist, but I think I know that there's a, there's a level playing field, you know, as a human, and I will say, what is it to be a man? Is as much as light in me, I want to live peaceably with my next man. So that, that's, that's me. So even when I go, or rather, I remember when I went to Boston and I went to a shop to buy stuff and I was in a hurry to, to leave to catch a flight and all things I bought for my kids, I was in a hurry. I was just pushing them. And one um, white chap came and he's an officer. I didn't know that, but he explained later. He wanted to know why I was, you know, um, getting all the stuff, if I paid for that stuff. And for me, it was normal. You know, I was in a hurry. I wanted to go, you know, but my friend was, oh, she went, oh, trust me, she went, she was on him. You know, why, why, I mean, what would you think you see a black man and you're asking for why he has this, blah, 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 blah. Um, and I said to her, just let him, okay, I said, who are you? What do you want? You know, he said, um, as a police officer, you know, in Africa, when they call police, you have to be careful too, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we know that one. So, you know, like, 
you know, I was a bit, I was more like, okay, okay, let me just know what he wants. You know, I, I was coming out down there. You see, I was the one, I was the one that was being harassed in court, but, but I was the one coming her down because I didn't feel harassed. I didn't feel, it was not in my culture, you know, for a white guy to come and, you know, ask questions. So when he now went ahead to say that, um, normally black guys go to the shops and then they take things and, you know, they come back, they steal that. Then that's when I, I took offense in some way because I had to defend the black man, so to speak, even if I wasn't from Boston there. I said, no, that's not proper. You can't just go ahead and think that. And these are my receipts. I'm in a hurry. I need to catch a flight. I'm leaving for London. And this is the only thing I need to do, not to pack properly or just to stop the things in the bank. And if you assume that stuffing means that I've stolen, then that's wrong. Because where I come from, I'm in a hurry. And I need to leave. But no, he said, okay, my passport. I said, get the passport from the, um, the reception is there. They got the passport. And he did apologize. He said he was sorry, you know, that he was doing his job that normally. And for me, that was... One experience that would have been uh, some kind of racism implied, and that was in 2013, not today, where, you know, it has escalated. So if you want to go further, being a man for me is to be confident and um, to do that with rights, you know, and as much as light in you, you know, um, be at peace with your fellow man. But as a black man, I mean, that's what my confidence is. As a black man, that's no need. I, I will not cry over spilled milk. And I will say that as a black man, once you understand the, the, the references, the need to be economically uh, independent and, and strive towards being conscious that you need some kind of boost economically. Trust me, you know, if all of the black men in America we come together in Africa to know what we have and push our economy stronger, then there's nothing. There's nothing we can do. We have all the resources in Africa, actually. I just want to say something. Yeah. Because, yeah. Because what it made me really now need to address is like when I teach my young people, I always talk about our history free before slavery and talk about the greatness of Africa, the continent. And that when we came here, we brought cultural values. This is how you create jazz. This is how you create the blues. Um, this is how you create the things that America has benefited from because we kept that cultural retention. That DNA from Africa was always in us. In spite of all the mess that we had to deal with, the systemic racism, the oppression, we had in us this ability to even be still doctors, lawyers, um, teachers and raise healthy children. It's not until recently we start to see this dysfunctional stuff that's going on in my position is that because we're culturally not connected and we don't understand our greatness that lies within us because we don't understand our history and we don't understand where I come from. A tree without its root will definitely die. So when we're disconnected from our roots, we are going to have issues that we're having now. So to make that reconnection, I'm glad the brother talked about Brothers on the continent connecting to us because that's what we need that unified front. All right. So, you know, um, just go back again to when I said you, you have your balance from the plantations, right? And I have my balance when they took us off and put on the boat or on the ship and came to your end. end. Now, culturally, um, Seke, the dance which I created, you know, traces the American tap dance back to my community anyway. 
we see the, the, the hunter tells a story and then the hunter is there to read about it. And that's why Mongo Park discovered my community. I mean, like, I was there before he came, so what's the problem with you? Uh, so because that's, that's you, know, we, <laughs> you know, that's that's what you see and that's what you read. From their point of view, they tell the stories the way they want to tell it. And, you know, sometimes, again, um, when you have BBC, when you have um, all of the international networks, you know, the media houses come to take videos and tell stories about Africa, you know, they don't tell the stories from a point of view of infrastructural uh, uprightness, you know, they don't see the skyscrapers, they don't see um, all of those green lawn, the roads, you know, all of the things that we have, you know, I'm not saying that we don't have the things they show, you know, but for their narrative, it would be better that they show our markets, our poor uh, displaced camps, you know, where you have, so that, that, that from the American point of view, again, are you Africans again, African-Americans, these are the kind of things you see regularly. And because Americans naturally don't even leave America anyway. And that's why you have an influx of Africans going into America, becoming African-Americans, not the African-Americans that were taken away as slaves. So you now see that that disconnect of the history. And I think even the history of the slave plantations as well are not even out there for you to even know that. Just like you said, when you're looking for your family from the plantations, all of those things, are, okay, there was roots. We saw roots. And when we we're watching roots from here, we were really, really angry, you know, in terms of, although it was a work of art, but that was an, an American experience. And these are the kind of things that they told us when they took us away as slaves. So the purgations of the emotions of pity and fear were not particularly purged because we were really angry, you know, watching Roots. And then you cry, you know, you look at it and like, you have to speak my local language. Yeah, ah, man, these Americans don't suffer. But the trick is that the suffering came from, from here and the long stretch, you know, tied, you know, chained, gagged, you know, that stretch before they got to America. But for me, as it comes to one thing about strength and purpose and being able to know your strength, to know that nobody can look down you because if you do that, you have given the person the right to do that. So juxtaposing Americans, African-Americans, and Africans proper. The key thing is that if we have to talk about George Floyd's experience and what is in America now, America is searching to know more about the history. You know, I, I mean, African-Americans are looking for where, how. That's why you're tracing your genealogy, you're doing your DNA, you know, you're trying to find where specifically in Africa you come from. So, and that's what T is doing here as well, you know, trying her best in the digital space in the contemporary world today where you have the millennials as you like to call them, you know, it is easy to search digitally. And from the old school, we like to read PDF files. Nobody wants to go through 400 pages of history. So how can you make history interesting either through animation, through whatever it is that you need to do, but 
tell the story if it has to be digital for them to know our story. And if we can, as much as we should do, is to show that Africa is not a hopeless uh, continent. And even if we have bad leadership, we can be better when the younger ones who are more proactive, because I mean, look at the African, the African child who goes to America or Europe to study, especially the female child who is about 26, 27, has double masters. But once they're done studying, what do they do with that? They go back to work in one um, McDonald's or uh, French fries uh, shop, you know, without Africans' leadership assimilating them back into Africa so that they can express themselves from what they've learned in the new world. Am I talking too much? Yes, I am. <laughs> no, 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 you're good. You know, this is the difference between having more mature men on the conversation and having my youngins, okay? When I had my youngins, it's like I needed to coax them. Sick of why? <laughs> <laughs> but this is good, though. This is good because... You guys are approaching this conversation from a perspective of like, it's deep. That's all I can say. It's deep. Anyway, so the next question I have for you is, um, when you were younger, what were some perceptions of manhood that you had and have those changed? Um, again, um, I grew up in a two-parent household. Um, so my dad, let me just give you some background history. In the South, it wasn't unusual for people not to finish elementary school or high school. My dad went to the eighth grade, moved up north with a lot of uh, Southern uh, African-Americans from the South did. We moved up north and he got a job in Republic Steel. So a lot of them went to the steel mills, auto uh, industry. And he said to me the classic example of what it is to be a man. And I could say this, thank God. I never went home. We didn't, we always had food. Our, always had utilities, and my dad was always there. And he set an example on how do you take care of a family, because family is this, the importance of any community. Without a family, you have no culture, you have no community. So my dad set an example of what it is to be a man. I never saw my dad hit my mother. He never did anything that was disrespectful. I'm not saying they didn't have any disagreements, because they did. My dad did it in a respectful way, he, again, always showed us how to be responsible, how to take care of a family, um, and making sure that you always was creation, um, courageous in terms of whatever you did, and to be mindful of always being responsible and with your integrity. Be a man. Never let nobody make you less than who you are, and never allow that to happen. And if it did, you had to check it. You stood his ground. Um, he was not a, a person who was violent, but he was very confident in who, in who he was. So I learned that as a young, as a boy growing up, I saw my father do things. He would always go hunting and fishing. He wouldn't let us go fishing with him because he always was afraid that we was going to fall in the water. But I saw my dad come home. He provided, like when he went, came from fishing, he would skin the fish, cut it open. When he went hunting, he would get the rabbit, he would skin it. I saw all of that. You know what I'm saying? So it was like living in a rural area, but we were living in an urban community. But again, that's what my dad grew up, how he grew up in the South. So he brought that technical knowledge to the North. So that idea of responsibility, I just saw him do it 24-7. I was born out of wedlock, you know, and 
here, you know, the it's not it's, it's it's not well. I don't know if it's a big deal in my area. Once your mom, your dad is not married to your mom, automatically you become your mother's child, and you have every right um, to the family of your mom. Uh, my dad was an okay guy. I mean, like really cool guy. Trust me on that. I'm not. I'm not saying okay guy out of disrespect. My dad didn't. My dad was just, you know, was a cool guy, you know. <laughs> I don't. I want to find the right one compared to what uh, Douglas has said about his dad. I'm, my rather, I'll push that to my uncle, who was more like my guardian. But my dad was just there, you know. It was my dad. Um, um, it was. It was. He didn't go to school like go to school, go to school. Um, but he trained hands on. Um, after the primary and secondary, he didn't go to the university, but he went to a hands-on school, you know, where they would build uh, uh, your greyhound buses, like the greyhound bus, like what we call luxurious buses here. Yeah. Okay, so my dad could, you know, he was a mechanic man, or how would you say, in American automobile, automobile engineer. You know? Yeah, so that's my dad was, he was a hands-on guy. And he was broad shoulders and all muscular, you know. But I grew up, I grew up with my great-grandparents. My mom was living in the township, and I was in the village with my great-grandparents. And my gra- great-grandmother was my favorite. She was the one that looked after me. In the, and then in our community then, we would as much as, you know, tales, what we call tales by moonlight. You know, we had where we would stay out there under the moon till late, you know, and tell stories. So the communal life was what I led. And then, like I said earlier, the community trained you. You know, you were not going to get naughty. You were not going to do anything then. And I mean, it was this, for you to do anything like steal or whatever, they're going to disgrace you uh, right now. Corporate punishment is not allowed. Yeah, they could put you in the, in the, in the community and get like 12 strokes of the cane, you know, in your bare buttocks, you know, like it was, it, we had grace, it was, so you wouldn't want to do, there are things you don't do, if you're, I mean, so, so you grew up knowing there were the certain things that you couldn't do. The truth really did set you free, you know, because once you speak the truth, no matter how bad, if you speak the truth, nobody does anything, you know, wrong to you. So I grew up with an uncle who was polygamous, um, he had three wives, and for that reason, I live with one of the wives, although they were in the UK, and the, one came back, one moved out. So while I was in the house with him, for all his, he smoked, he never took alcohol, maybe once a while, he would take uh, the social drink but once a while, but he would do Benson and Hedges like forever. And there were things I knew I wasn't going to do. I knew I was going to smoke for one. I knew I was going to have three wives. You know, there are things that were positive. Even when I lived in the family, you know, I knew there were things that I wasn't going to do. And my uncle used to do something for me then. He would sit me down every 6.30 a.m. before we get to the bus to go to school. And there's always a, a news cap, you know, for you to listen to the news. So by 6 o'clock, sorry, 6 a.m., he would make me listen to the news for like 25 minutes. So on our way to school, if he's driving, he's going to make me tell him all that the news was all about. 
So I now learned how, how to tell stories because I had to remember, you know, the news um, <clears throat> because then he's going to like turn and whack me for telling because he's also going to listen to the story the news upstairs. <laughs> but be that as it may, my uncle molded me. He, he put me on the right track because for all of the things that he probably was not for other people he was to me because he channeled me, you know, to know that there were things that I had seen him do that I didn't want to do. He was very liberal with that. And it wasn't like, he wouldn't say, oh, getting married to three men is the best way. You know, he's going to weigh all of the options to you and make you choose rightly. And we had those conversations. He made me cook. Oh yeah, I cook a lot. He made me go to the market. I could haggle with, with the market women like. So those are the little things, you know, that I, I got to learn growing up. And that, that molded and shaped my life, you know, up till date because, um, because I didn't have my dad. We have to upgrade. So because I didn't have my dad there, right? So having my kids and my family, one of the integral parts of growing up with them is to, sh to be there for them, you know, to have that... I'm not doing the, the, the flogging, you know, they're this age, I can't do that, you know, and uh, sometimes, you know, it comes natural, but, you know, there's a bond that I didn't get from my parents growing up that I absolutely have with my kids, not because I miss my dad, but because I know that, you know, this era of kids have not been trained to be like us back in the day. You know, right now, that's the freedom of speech. That's the freedom of everything here in the world that, you know, things are misconstrued, you know, depending on how you approach it, depending on the society that you are. And the, the, the earth is now global. So what is obtainable in your backyard or in your community can be like it is in the UK or it is in America. So you need to conform. But at the same time, you're trying your best, you know, to have your kids grow up and the cultural, you know, like brought up in a home with many years of cultured living, even when you're in America, where social services will come, and then it emboldens the child to know that, oh, I have the power now, you know, free at last. <laughs> oh, God, it's crazy. I love your hair, man. I don't know if you, they're not seeing you, but I want them to know that you have an amazing skin cut. <laughs> Yeah, I'm bald. <laughs> Listeners, I'm bald. Nothing. I actually need a haircut. This thing grows so fast. But, okay. So, Doc, when you were speaking, you were talking about, um, you know, standing up for yourself being something that your, um, your dad taught you. And I think I heard similar from you too, Yibo. And you said uh, you had to stand up for yourself and you were, not, you were not supposed to allow people to disrespect you. When someone disrespected you, you had to check it. So this is something that I know is very important, especially to everyone, because boundaries, boundaries are important. You, right. you are, people treat you the way you allow them to. However, as a black man too, I've also, as a black, well, why did I just say black man? Why am I saying black man? I'm a black woman now. Anyway, as a, as a black person, <laughs> you know, from Africa, living in America now, I also know what that looks like where if you try to stand up for yourself, sometimes it can become problematic. So how have you navigated that 
in America, especially if you're a black man or you, or you, and you try to stand up for yourself, it could go one of two ways and most likely not the good way. How do you work around that? And for you, Yibo, um, I, I can't really talk much about being a black man in Africa because in the African setting, I am a woman, whether I like it or not. And so there are going to be some drastic differences with what it means to stand up for myself. But similarly, are there situations where you standing up for yourself has also meant you have to deal with some things which were quite unpleasant? Or how, how did that look like for you, both of you? Well, you know, it depends on the circumstances, too. You know, you have to um, navigate through difficulties. I've had... Um, encounters with the police. Um, it's never ended up where I had to uh, encounter any physical harm, but we understood that we had to be trained on how to interact with the police because of the history of the police between black folks and the police department, law enforcement has not always ended up good. Um, so in that, in that respect, you know, you know, you if you were approached by the police, you had to have a certain demeanor. It couldn't be like confrontational as they come up, because then you knew that they were going to interpret that as you're going to try to do something. Um, but you still had to have this internal confidence. That's what I call it, that you didn't reject any fear. You know, it was always respect, even if on in terms of dealing with the community. Um, right now, young people try to prove themselves by how many guns they got. If you say something somebody don't like, they call their friends and their friends come do something to you. Um, everybody's carrying guns because we lost a sense of responsibility to, to the community and how to resolve our conflicts without violence. There's a way to do that. We have to be taught how to make it happen. A lot of people read your body language. If they read that you're going to be confrontational, I'm not saying that it's always going to work, but for the most, for the most part, they're going to see that, oh, they got to have confrontational unless you can kind of redirect the energy of that interaction. So what I train myself to do is to have a certain demeanor that is not threatening, but at the same time, let you know that I'm confident in myself. But we have to teach young people how to do that. That is a work in progress. Um, that's, I think we've done, and I don't need to speak in terms of America, we have not done a very good job in teaching our young people how to resolve conflicts without violence, because being tough is associated with being manhood. That's not true. Our, our labeling is off. What it is to be a man, I gotta be always being a tough guy. You know, learning how to, to me, the most tough person is the one who can navigate the conflict into a peaceful resolution. That is skill. So how do we teach that to our youth? Because at this point, we have to do that. In Cleveland, we have a lot of homicides. And we have to address that because young people are only reflection of the adults. If we're confused, trust me, they're going to be confused. But um, hopefully I'm answering your question. My thing is always starting with the internal, developing that internal confidence because people can read that. Children read your body language. I call it body literacy. They can know when you have this sense of you, you care about them. And they know at the same time that you have the sense of confidence, not threatening, but in terms of bridging healthy relationships. So we got to get back to changing the, the lingo. You know, how do we talk about being, what it is really to be tough? It's all misconstrued right now. 
I don't have to prove my manhood by beating you up. I don't have to do that because inside of me, I already know who I am. So we had that internal self-confidence. It shows in everything that we do. Well, it's amazing uh, because then, like I said, the point of view is always one from the African, the other from the African-American. Um, like you said, it's also, I mean, the situation will also arise for you to, you know, take absolute control of what you have. And growing up, there's one thing I knew, said contrary to our parents, size is never a guarantee of strength anyway. So um, I, I, I knew that for one. And you know, that's why I encourage my kids, but they don't listen this way. You know, like go learn a bit of boxing, go learn a bit of karate, you know, then jiu-jitsu. You know, because it's a discipline. Right. There's a code to all of those things, you know. But again, that fortifies you to protect yourself, you know, in terms of fisticuffs. I mean, it, the fighting is not, for me, it's, it's on one to ten, it doesn't exist anyway. But just in case that I would have to someday defend myself, I like to know, or like I would say, I would like to know how to run around until I have people come to, you know, like hold on to the next person and hold on to me. But I wouldn't want to be helpless if one deranged fellow comes and wants to attack me. I need to protect not just myself, but my family as well. But again, in America, you guys have guns. So, you know, it's a little bit different from here in Africa. I mean, once this, there's this, this sniff that you have a gun, I mean, like, you're such a criminal beyond your imagination. So, <laughs> and only criminals, I mean, carry guns. I mean, it's, 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 it doesn't work like it's a crime. That's what it is. It's a crime to have a gun. <laughs> so, I mean, if you have to find the word crime in its worst state, you know, of, of, of description, that's what it is. So we don't have guns here, you know, guns are carried by the military, you know, or paramilitary or by <laughs> arm robbers. So <laughs> if you're not permitted to carry arms and then you carry, then you're messed up. So even when you have a license to carry um, a shotgun, still, it's still a big deal. But I think, uh, or that I know, from your point of view or from the question again, is when I think about so when I think about all of all of the things growing up as a black man in 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 Africa, right? Police police ah who? When I talk about police, hmm. mm. no play there. <laughs> you know, it's not your own kind of you know right of uh, the 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 your you know these guys. Trust me, in anything you do, it is good to be respectful. You know, because then it's reciprocal. Unless the next person's energy is completely bad. And I will advise that it doesn't make you a lesser person, you know, to want to be confrontational. Like Douglas said, you know, at any given time, always show that. It's not because you're big. Big is not just the size. You know, because you're big in authority means that, you know, you can trample upon me. There's some kind of energy that comes out of you 
that will make the next person understand that, you know what, we need to part ways as friends or as citizens of the country. But uh, T, you know how it is with us here, you know, Nigerians are aggressively Nigerian and our aggression is not, is, we call it gragra. It's not, um, it's, it's not antagonistic. It's just the way we are, you know, the way we talk. Ghanaians are a little more subtle and, you know, not weak, but you know, they're a little more gentle. Nigerians anywhere we, we like, when we're talking, you think that we're fighting, it's, it's a fun there. Right. And sometimes again, you can also use that approach to an officer who is not ready for that kind of the language. And before you want to get yourself out of that fix, you've been locked up somewhere because you raised your voice, you know, and they do, might not want you to raise their voice. They don't want, they want, they don't want to condescend to your level at that point, And you will be feeling like, I mean, what the hell, who are you? I'm for your police. Once they sense that challenge, you're messed up. So basically, in all of this, it's just just self self worth, you know, and respect for oneself, and it's infectious, you know. In emotions are contagious. So whatever it is that you have as energy that you give out is going to affect or infect the next person. And once it is positive, I mean, when very positive, then it goes well for you. But once the emotions of the other one is bad. I also contagious, right? And then it, it catches up to you and probably is a misplaced aggression. If you don't track and handle it properly, then there is a conflict that is major. And trust me, you will always be the one at the receiving end. So why would I put myself in that position anyway? This, this, this is something that I feel like a lot of people need to be aware of just because... I'm a young person. I hear what we the young people say. And it's like, yeah, why, but why should I have to be a certain way just because they're law enforcement? But then that's the difference between whether you go home or not in some situations. And it's like, okay, this ego that you are trying to protect, if you are dead, the ego is not there again, you know? But then people also have the argument that why does it have to be so? But, you know, you cannot teach an old dog new tricks. You could try to beat it into them, but these things are very deeply ingrained into the system. And so dismantling the system is not an overnight job. And the people who need to do the dismantling ought to first stay alive to do the dismantling. But that's a different conversation. Yeah. <clears throat> he fights and runs the way, leaves to fight another day. You know? Exactly. Okay, so now we're talking <clears throat> about the social political climate. Um, I know definitely that the social political climate in Nigeria and in the U.S. are very different things. What does it make you tune into when you're thinking about your maneuvering as a man? Like, okay, so like you said, in Nigeria and even in Ghana, as soon as you start, if, if, they, if, the, if law enforcement sends the least bit of aggression in your interaction with them, it's like, okay, I am the one with the badge. You know, and similarly in the U.S. too, even in the U.S., all they have to do is have a bad day. Really, all they have to do is have a bad day. <laughs> so with these kind of social political climates, um, how do you navigate? I mean, you already talked about it, but I know there are other factors which we didn't mention outside of law enforcement. What are some of these other social political climates you could think about? Um, and how do you navigate them? I just thought as the brother was speaking, uh, like in the civil rights movement, and this is not talked about a lot, before they would actually engage in a protest, they had classes on how to protest. 
they had classes of you went to the um, restaurant. They, they taught you how to engage and in the situation where you knew you were going to get hit set upside your head. So they had these classes with these movements today. I'm not sure if they're teaching these young people on how to do civil disobedience in a way that it is constructive and in a way that they are taught these skills. These are internal intrinsic skills that you have to have. For example, I mean, you sports. If you never practice and you just go to the game, how do you know what to do? You have to know your role. On the basketball court, I use the example all this time with my young people. If you don't know what position you play, you go on the court, you don't know what to do. You're not needed. So those things, I think we have to teach our young people that they have these classes, how to engage in these type of demonstrations, how you kept your in, internal situation together. And I, I'm going to use this one um, thing that just came to my mind as a brother was speaking, because um, I teach Capoeira. I got a call from uh, Joseph's brother, Brandon, and he has a PhD in biochemical engineering, PhD. And he said one of the things that was important to him was what I taught him when he learned capoeira. I get this all the time. Young people come in, you're still teaching capoeira? It helped me so much. It helped me to be more confident. It helped me how to navigate through a conflict because that's what capoeira teaches you, how to turn a disadvantage into an advantage, how to navigate a situation where it doesn't control you, you control it in a way that you can have a healthy outcome. So... Those are the things I think we have to really talk about. Are we teaching young people viable skills? So when they get in these type of situations, they can at least learn how to navigate. Not always going to come out the best way, but at least you can say, I know I have in me these intrinsic values to help me navigate through a, a crisis. Because we're going through a lot of trauma right now. They talk about COVID. Black people have been going through trauma for a long time. So again, we have to learn how to even deal with that type of trauma. So my thing is about healing, because I practice Tai Chi as well. How do we heal ourselves? And what are we doing on a daily basis to ensure that we are doing self-check? We have to do that to keep our mental and spiritual thing together. And that, that's a practice that we have to do on a daily basis. Well, uh, Douglas, like um, the conversation um, I put up is he who fights and runs away. Mm. leaves to fight another day, you know. And then my father would say, man, no die, man, no rotten, you know. And so as long as you're not dead, <laughs> you're alive. That's what it means. That means you can do a whole lot. <clears throat> Sometimes it deals with ego and also empowers the one who confronts, mm -hmm. you know, because they know that's your reaction. And because they have the law, I mean, later they might be against the law, but at that particular time, right now, thanks to the digital age, you know, everybody records, even in Nigeria, but you need to survive. Instinctively, you must have street credibility. And if you have street credibility, it means that you listen very well to those at home, you know, who have been on the streets to tell you back how to apply your credibility on the streets. And religion here, ethnicity here, unlike America, you know, so we have different tribes, 
even within our space. And sometimes the things we do become clannish, you know, not because you're right, but just because you come from this area, I need to support you, yeah? You know, so under the military code is expiry the corp. So basically, the best skill is you stoop to conquer. It doesn't make you weak. It's discipline, like you said. You know, it's discipline. It doesn't make you weak. Um, it may, even at the end of the problem, you see that your your accuser becomes your friend. He's going to apologize for like what happened to myself in Boston. Like I said, you know, that's the way I am. You know, you know. But if we're ready, in 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 there's a masquerade we play when we're singing. Say, you know, if you want us to go into voodoo, we'll go. If you want us to go to church and Christ consciousness, we go. If you want us to go to the streets, we go. Once they know that you're able to go through all of these areas, they, they go for that which is peaceful. And you must have that discipline, you know. And I remember um, with all these George Floyd things going on in America, and I saw one, um, the one about the FBI guy, you know, where he was harassed by the police, and then he went on and uh, I have I have my brother-in-law's who is in the in the U.S. Marine and he's been to um, Afghanistan and Iraq. You know, you never know he's a Marine. One that you know once you see him, you know tactically he can take you right. Right. So what he would do is ask the kind of questions that will make you know that he has a military background first, <laughs> and he will make. Put your hands in his pocket while requesting or demanding to see your supervisor for you to go to his pocket and pick his, his um, ID and then you start apologizing. But I know you have a law. That's why sometimes um, people want to um, quote the law, you know, and then they have this conversation with the police. Sometimes they just want you to want to quote the law. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's a bit tricky because here it's different. If I'm in America, first of all, if I see the police without I've seen on TV and everywhere, I'm going to have some sort of palpitations, right, internally. But externally, you will know that because I'm breathing, I'm doing my tachi. I'm like, I'm being calm. I'm trying to do, I'm not going to do anything to empower him to do anything that is harmful to me. I have my family back in Africa. So where we have... All of this, there's a language say it's it's why why I can't out of it. You know, like when the when it's hot, you sip it gradually. You blow, you sip. By the time you get to the middle, it's it's it's, it's a little bit lukewarm. You know, then you can gulp it. So that's you deescalate when it's hot. You must have that mentality. It doesn't make you weak. Wow. I mean, you guys can already assume that I deliberately ended this first episode of this conversation on that sport being able to maneuver being tactful in situations is the true measure of your strength it's not your size and it's not your aggression as black people we have aggression that is very well placed and very well merited but if you are not tactful you may not live to fight another day and we need the numbers we need our tact. We need our intellect. We need that strength to fight the good fight that we are fighting. I love you and I'll never try.
Honestly, I just had to get Miss Angie stoning to this because this song, Brother, is an ode to our kings, our princes, our sons, our fathers, our grandfathers, our cousins, our nephews. And this is a way for me to say, I love you. We love you. And we are here for you. So thank you to Yibo and Mr. Douglas. But like I said, the conversation was so delicious that I had to split it into two. And I'll be bringing you the second part next brother, week. A talented brother, and to every one of y'all behind bars, you know that Angel loves you. Oh, my black brother. Okay, y'all know I need to just I need to just flex my vocal cords a little bit. So I just had to flex my vocal cords. Anyway, but seriously though, I've learned so much from this first part of the conversation and I know there's so much more juicy knowledge coming next week. So I definitely want you to stay with me throughout this community series. So far, it's been phenomenal. It's been great. And I couldn't have done it without you. So again, thank you. Thank you all so much for being here with me. Anyway, like I said, we have the second part of this podcast coming next week. And then... I have more tricks up my sleeves, you know. <sighs> tea always has something cooking. And I guess that's what keeps thoughts and tea interesting. But anyway, I cannot wait to have a conversation with you next week. I, until then, will tea you later. Clink.